I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. Uh, we are playing a little bit of, uh, I don't know, OG today, right? Uh, some a bit of a walk down memory lane for myself, certainly, uh, is where I came from when we uh, asked Wesley Berry to join us on the, uh, the podcast and talk a little bit about some of his past with APIs and some of the things he's doing today. Uh, my co-host again, Anna. Anna, thank you. Uh, and so... Uh, Wesley, tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, then we'll kind of get into it. Uh, sure. Yeah, I uh, work for Salesforce, have for just over 10 years now. Most of that time was inside of Heroku. So when I joined, that's definitely where I was. And that's where I was for, I think, six or seven years, really, of the 10 years. So um, worked a lot on uh, Heroku API stuff, which is uh, definitely what brought me to the attention of you all, I think. And I think we'll have some things to say about that. Um, otherwise, I live in Iowa, so I've worked remotely for Salesforce the whole time I've worked there, which is kind of interesting in some right, maybe. And uh, father relatively recently. I mean, she's like three and a half now, but it still feels like yesterday almost. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, into woodworking, into gymnastics, among other things. Uh, kind of pretty eclectic set of interests, I guess. So I think that'll probably come out as we uh, chat more as well. Nice. Well, uh, I try to frame my mess out, but yeah, I, I think we probably have some maker empathizing to do there. Sure. Um, cool. Well, I, you know, we were kind of doing some look back on how sort of API style guides in their you know current form, and and certainly with our interests around spectral and kind of the community growing around that in uh, automating some of this stuff. Um, you know, my time at, at at PayPal, one of the things we did there is said, you know, let's let's take our internal guidelines for API design and, and make some sort of, you know, vignette of that for external consumption, just out of the interest that people doing these things don't really, there's not a way to share it. And uh, at the time, I was very inspired by Heroku's work. And, and as I learned over time that uh, you played a big part in that, in uh, sort of publicly, you know, publishing some of these guidelines. So I'm mm -hmm. curious, most of all, first off, like, you know, where did that come from? Uh, and I suppose this was pre-Salesforce, so perhaps you didn't have sort of the corporate overlord factor to deal with uh, that sometimes stops these things from happening. But, you know, why'd you do it? What'd you learn from it? All that stuff. I'd love to hear all about it. Sure. I mean, uh, where to even start? Wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me, a lot of the journey of like just a lot of my like, I guess, uh, career trajectory in some sense um, really took off right around the start of a lot of cloud stuff becoming a thing, you know, as the original Amazon Web Services came out, that sort of thing. And so one of the things that I ended up getting really involved in just because I was interested, you know, kind of relating to this whole like maker, tinkerer kind of aesthetic, like cloud stuff seemed really cool, but it, boy, was it a pain to figure out how to actually use it when none of us were familiar with it. All of this stuff was brand new. Um, I wouldn't say that a lot of AWS's uh, APIs are necessarily the most user friendly. So just like trying to kind of like figure that out. So one of the things that I sort of just like undertook in order to learn that better was to start writing um, API client libraries um, in Ruby. Um, and I started with AWS with especially um, some of the services that were 
not supported at all yet. There just wasn't a client library for it because it was so new, like DynamoDB or other things that had like just come out. Um, and it eventually then spread across to make them for more and more of the AWS uh, things. And then like Rackspace came out with their offering and other people came out with theirs. And I was curious about those. And so I started making clients for those. And then eventually built out this whole suite of libraries to support a bunch of different cloud providers that has a somewhat shared interface anyway, that in, in and of itself is like kind of a uh, sore spot, I guess, in terms of how much of a common interface you can really have because of how different the different cloud providers are. But it's a, it's a library called Fog um, in Ruby. And so from that whole experience, I had the opportunity, uh, you know, blessing, curse, I don't know, some of both maybe to be exposed to a lot of different APIs uh, that were kind of sort of trying to do the same thing, uh, which was interesting in terms of, I guess, being able to kind of build my palette almost, I guess. It's like we almost need like API like wine tasting or something of sort of like, oh, I, I note hints of rest in this one. And there's just this little bit of, uh, you know, like graph influence or something. I, I kind of like that mix or something, right? Um, so, you know, everybody has their own kind of style and flavor. And so I think a lot of that, you know, this is the long way of me getting, getting to like that really helped me to build a sense of my own taste and preferences so that when it came time then for us to really talk seriously about within the context of Heroku, what we were going to do, how that API was going to come together, what we did and didn't want. Um, I wasn't just like starting from scratch. I had this sense of like, well, you know, I've, I've looked at these like 10, 15, 20 APIs in some level of detail. I liked that part. I didn't like this part. And, and then it was still, I think, an interesting uh, exercise to go through the process of trying to articulate why I didn't, didn't like things. Like that wasn't always as easy. And that's really what a lot of the style guide was trying to do was not just say, this is what we should do because I say so, but more, this is what we should do. And here is some reasoning as to why I think that is the better approach. Um, and I don't think we got it all right, but I think that, you know, putting some kind of um, stake in the ground was helpful. And for me, there was a mix of uh, motivations too. I mean, some of it certainly was, you know, just me trying to better educate my colleagues so that I wouldn't have to be the one that made every API decision <laughs> anymore, right? That, you know, I could say, hey, I wrote up as much as I could, like how I think about APIs. Um, I know it's a lot to digest or whatever, but like I, I want to be able to refer back to that and help you to learn how I think about it so that you can think more like that as well. Or if I'm wrong, that you can call me out and we can have a discussion explicitly about what I think, you know, why I reason that way, why that's not right, how we should change it, um, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, given my background and how a lot of my um, coming up and everything was based in open source, like whenever I can, I would prefer to do something more publicly. Like I, I've rarely found that to be um, something that has many downsides. I mean, there are challenges sometimes in terms of maintaining and keeping those things running and supporting the community that sometimes builds around them. But for me, that's always felt worth it, I guess, if that makes sense. I think that's a perfectly adequate answer. Um, and I just want to call out here, this is very interesting in that I think most people would say, hey, if you came up with an API, you know, a guide for how to design good APIs, I think most people would assume you built APIs all the time. And what <laughs> I find fascinating here is it's actually that client or consumer advocacy. So like, here's all the things I tried and all the things I didn't like that I want to prevent from having to interact with again. I think this is super valuable 
for folks to learn from listening that um, I, I find that in a lot of especially larger enterprises, they get all the backend architects together and they wore it out over, you know, some sure. technical faction aspects. And it's like, ask the people who use them, right? You might get a different look. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think we get stuck in that mindset a lot in technology for whatever reason, but like in a lot of other worlds, you wouldn't expect that, right? Um, like, I don't know, like, you know, touching on, you know, some of my other hobbies, like I'm really interested in like making chairs. I haven't succeeded yet in actually doing it, but this is something that I would like to do. Like, I wouldn't expect that as someone that's new to trying to make chairs that I would just go and reason it out and figure out the right way to make a chair. I'm going to go and look at a bunch of different chairs and see what I like and don't like about them. And that is how I'm going to get to a hypothesis about what a good chair might look like, right? Um, I don't think that working from it the other way is going to end up in a good result. I mean, there's a similar thing just like of, in my experience of like all programming, if I try to go straight to like the abstraction, basically, which is, you know, what we're talking about really with an API usually like is abstracting how you interface with the thing. If I try to go straight to writing the abstraction without working through a few examples first, the abstraction is almost always terrible. Like I really need to usually work through two or three examples of something to kind of see the shape of it and then work backwards from there to figure out what the right abstraction is that's going to, you know, map to that shape in a meaningful way. Um, and yeah, I think otherwise you end up painting yourself into a corner. And, you know, similarly, there's just like a cost to benefit ratio kind of thing, right? Like the cost to consume another API is relatively low. The cost to build another API is enormous in, in many cases, right? And the cost of a mistake in the two cases also way different. Like if I'm consuming your API and I make a mistake, like who cares, right? It's very recoverable, like very low impact. But if I make an API and release it to the world that is wrong, I'm in for months to years of pain in one way or another, probably like, so, um, yeah, I think that made sense to me. Although, you know, I guess I hadn't really thought about it in quite the, the terms that you spoke of it. So, so I, I love this idea of like, um, finding the cost and benefit. And my question was going to be, how do you balance sort of that flavor and style and innovation and excitement with sort of a need for more standardization and, and a need for more consistency without, you know, designing out innovation? Uh, that's a tricky one for sure. Um, I mean, I think for a lot of this, like it's, it's a balancing act, right? So like, I don't think I should try to like, innovate or come up with a new idea for every single part of the API, but that doesn't mean that I can't do, you know, 80 or 90% of it in a way that seems relatively straightforward and traditional and then try some things around the edges. So even in the context of the Heroku API, we did some things that are kind of weird and I don't know if I would do them again or whatever, but they were areas where we we're trying to do something interesting. So the way we do like pagination and stuff is, is quirky, I think, and not really exactly like I've seen elsewhere. Although I've seen things that are similar, like it wasn't totally from scratch. Um, so, you know, like it, it's just, <clears throat> I guess you have to pick your battles, right? Like, I, I don't think having everything be new and shiny and whatever is going to be the best. I mean, to some extent, it goes back to this sort of like user experience or like client development angle, right? Like, I don't want to have to completely figure out your weird, not like anything else API from scratch. Like that's going to turn me off from even interacting with your service at all. Like I want some degree of familiarity, but I also can appreciate when it's, mostly familiar but there's a little twist right and in, in some ways i think it even helps you to appreciate that twist even more like oh i really appreciate this difference that you bring to this space like that that is and you know again i think that's something that came for me from 
consuming a bunch of APIs that were in a similar space, right? To see the nuances between how Rackspace or OpenStack or you know Google approached, I don't know, like a blob store versus how Amazon did it, right? And which features they did and didn't emphasize and what was easy to do and what was harder to do and things like that. So I guess I, I should have qualified earlier the 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 time frame that we're talking about. Because I, I want to give you a pass on like the paging stuff because this was, if I remember right, something like 2013, so like verging on 10 years ago now. Yeah, that's that's that probably right? true. Yeah, there there were a lot of things where, you know, I probably would have used standards if there were clear ones around, but there were a lot Bingo. of cases where there were a few yeah. things that were competing to become the standard, and so we just kind of yep. had to make a call because we needed to move forward. Yeah, and, and I think that's uh, the, the relevant bit to that story. And maybe, Anna, a part of uh, answering your question in a more, like, let's say, uh, timeline-sensitive way is the areas, my interpretation here, you experimented with the areas that were unclear as to what clear expectations would be, right? Uh, so, like, paging at the time, I remember, like, it was, there were a couple different ways that people tended to do it. And I think that's still true to some extent, but there is kind of a flavor of what people like to see, right? <laughs> that is much more clear now versus eight, 10 years ago, um, which I think is an interesting one uh, to, to look back on now is when you think about, uh, well, first of all, I should also qualify. We've asked Wesley to go on a trip down the history lane with or uh, memory lane with us, but that's not really what he's doing today. And we're going to get to that. But. If you had to like go and do all this again today, you know, do you think that would be a, a different exercise, perhaps uh, discounting your obviously much greater experience since then? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's 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 tricky. I mean, I was younger in my career as well, right? And I think there is a degree to which. When you're earlier in your career, you're more likely to have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder or feel like you have something to prove. So I think there are some parts there where it's like, I wanted to show that I had the chops or something to come up with something that could do this in an interesting way, as opposed to just doing the um, the more staid or whatever, the, the thing that existed before that would maybe have been good enough. Like, um, I think there were some cases where now... I would think harder about whether or not those were battles that I wanted to fight for some of those things where they were quirky or whatever, right? To be like, it's not that I don't have a reason for doing this, but is that reason really good enough for me to go off and do this? Like, um, at the time I was like, yeah, because I don't know, again, like I think there was some extent to which like I wanted to prove something, right? Um, which I think I've mellowed out a little bit, or maybe I already proved some things. And so now I don't feel as much of compulsion to do that. But I think there were some places like that where, um, I might not have pushed as hard. Um, I don't know. I also, I think, uh, am a little bit more comfortable with nuance maybe now than I was at, at times then, uh, there are definitely some things where I sort of like, even if it's a little bit weird, if we can choose, like if we can pick and, uh, uh, sort of explain one rule and then apply it uniformly across everything that we're doing, that's going to be easier because then we don't have to explain exceptions, whatever else. Um, having had many more years of experience, you know, like you see that exceptions are inevitable really. And so then I don't know that I would have railed so much against that and pushed back as hard. Um, especially because it's like that worked until it didn't, right. There were cases where it was like, yeah, we picked a good rule. This is great. And then you're almost done with the API and like, there's that one more endpoint or something. And you're like, 
oh, this it's just it is totally untenable for me to still apply this one rule here. And so now do I need to go back to the drawing board and reconsider whether or not it made sense to be so strict about applying it everywhere else? Because now I can't actually apply it everywhere like I originally intended. Um, and that's, you know, that's tricky. But um, I don't know. There's not too many things I don't think that I would call out and say this particularly I would change. Like overall, I feel relatively satisfied with it. Um, I think one of the things if I had to name something would probably have to do with like how deeply nested some of the resources were or weren't. Um, there were some cases where it's like, I don't know, <laughs> we can get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of the Heroku API, but there were a lot of things that like you can only address this resource if you nest it underneath a particular app. And so then that ends up implying basically that you have like a, a compound foreign key where you need to know the app's ID and the ID of whatever re resource you need to reference. But like, there's no reason why we can't look up that app that resource by its direct reference. And so like having a top level version of that, that you can just directly access and not have to reference it inside of an app. Seems like it would have been a better experience in a lot of cases and simpler. Like you don't have to construct as like weird of URLs and things and clients like that just would have been probably a better experience. Um, but of course, like we came to this realization after that ship had sailed to some extent and like reining that back in or supporting both options is, you know, kind of a pain in its own right. So um, that, that's probably one of the ones that really caught me out of like, oh, like there are cases where you really, basically it is a compound foreign key. So sure, like let's make a huge URL that has all the keys in it that it needs or whatever. But if you really have something that has a unique identifier, like just let people access it by that unique identifier at more or less the top level and, you know, call it a day. So. Yeah, I think you, you touch on two principles that I've uh, worked with folks on on their API designs many, many times over the years. Sure. One is what you said, like, don't force a compound identifier on the, the consumer. If mm -hmm. you can do more work on the server on their behalf to have a single identifier, like that's just when you're doing, when you're on the client side, that's a no brainer. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, and yeah, once it's out in the wild, you can't reel it back, right? <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> you already said that one before. Um, I wanted to back up a little bit though to a thing you touched on earlier about about yourself that I I think I find is true in uh, sort of managing engineers in their earlier careers is this mm -hmm. sort of the ego versus need and I'm certainly guilty of this one too right this sure. this kind of well this is what we need which looks a little boring so how can I spice that up and put my mark on it right yeah um, I think this makes a great segue to maybe put our walk down memory lane back in the memories. Uh, although I, I might circle back and ask another question in a minute, I forgot, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, so it's like these days, you're much more involved in kind of engineering culture-ish by the sounds of it, the way it reads within yeah. Salesforce. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, like how did you get from, you know, writing standard style guide, whatever you want to call it, around APIs and, um, you know, the kind of, developer experience around Heroku into, you know, kind of how Salesforce does engineering? Sure. Um, it, there's m maybe more of a common thread in my mind than is obvious. I mean, I'm not sure that that sounds obvious when you just say it. Um, for me, uh, really a lot of my time at, um, like in my career in general, but especially within Heroku and Salesforce has been um, identifying some underserved need and then finding a way to work on that thing. So even when I initially joined Heroku, um, the position that I negotiated for myself, even though that wasn't what they had like listed on the listing initially or whatever, was to just work directly on the CLI client. Um, 
like the CLI client existed certainly at that point. People liked it pretty well, but it was something where people came in and worked on it when something needed to happen on it for their feature. And then they walked away again. There wasn't like really an owner. There wasn't like an overarching um, sense of what the CLI should be. And so there were some inconsistencies over time that had slipped into it. Like you'd notice if you look closely between different commands and stuff that it's like, those are more or less doing the same thing. Why does it have a completely different like verb kind of in the CLI command? Like, well, you know, that, that doesn't make that much sense. Could be just make this a more consistent, uniform experience so that it's easier to learn, basically. If you already know it, it kind of doesn't matter, right? Like you, you have the muscle memory, whatever, you can run the command. But if you've never learned this thing before, the more differences there are between, you know, this thing's called create and that thing's called add. But really, in effect, they're doing the exact same thing. So why do we call it two different things? So that's what I started working on. And then over time, worked on a lot of things, including then... From working on the CLI, actually, I got a ton of experience working with the Heroku API because that was what I was interacting with all the time and started to see that in the same way the CLI had formed, like the exact same thing had happened on the server side where somebody needed something for a feature and they added something to the API and then they walked away again. And, you know, it, that works okay-ish, <laughs> but, you know, is not really a sustainable um, way to do things and doesn't really end up with a good uniform interface over time. Um, and so we also had a lot of um, idiosyncrasies there, a lot of inconsistencies. And after I had kind of gotten things settled down and like um, locked in a little bit on the CLI, I ended up transitioning over then to the API team and working actually specifically on um, moving towards that public API, uh, what what that would look like, how we would do it, actually doing a lot of the implementation as well as the sort of design aspects. Um, did that for quite some time. And then coming out of that, started working more on uh, really in many ways thinking about some of the governance things. I think that's what kind of started leading me more towards this culture stuff. So in addition to some of this sort of like API related governance things, like I wasn't designing every endpoint anymore. Other people were. So how did we like help them to not have such a hard time doing the right thing and make it not a painful process and make it not take forever that they can still add things, but still have it be up to the quality standards that we wanted, have it be consistent in the ways we wanted, that sort of thing. That's also why we did the design guide, um, you know, and so through all of that, then I saw that it felt like there was a broader, more general need there. And that led to defining an RFC process that we started using internally and helping to run that, defining a set of things for doing architecture decision records and just more general decision records. Um, and so anyway, it was this sort of like, iterative step more and more towards that more organizational side of things. And I felt really like there were a number of things organizationally where, again, there were needs that just weren't quite getting met, that the things that fell in between the cracks, um, and especially like within broader Salesforce, the way we're organized is that we have architects, which are sort of like our most senior individual contributors, and they are sprinkled throughout the organization, but technically dotted line up to sort of the office of the CTO. And so it ends up that because they're distributed in that way, there wasn't someone that was really taking a holistic view of what it meant to be an architect, what that ecosystem was like, what particular needs they had. Like for any individual leader, they're like, I have two or three architects out of my several hundred people. Like I'm not going to give them special treatment or worry too much about what they need in particular. Um, but if you look across the whole org and you have a few hundred architects, then you're like, actually, this is a, a the size of a population that like could probably use some, some support. And um, so let's think about how we can make their life easier and how we can help them to be more effective. And, um, you know, I think the other thing that people don't realize until we got into it more deeply is that 
the things that make their lives easier and help them to be more effective are frequently not very technical. Like by the time they've reached that point in the career, like they've got the technical thing, like locked down. Like that's not the challenge really. Like really it's more, Hey, it turns out as in a senior individual contributor, you are part of the leadership of the company, but you don't have any authority. You just have influence and trying to direct the way that we will go in the future. Um, without that is a challenge, especially if that's not something you've done before, if that's not your background, if you haven't gotten some support and thought about doing that, you know? So um, that's kind of more and more the realm that I'm in of like, how do we get folks to be able to take their technical knowledge and be able to effectively advocate for that to impact the direction that we're going and to take advantage of what they know and to, you know, really just move the company forward. That's a common challenge that we hear from so many of our guests is, is do we have the mandate? Do we have the, the ability to do what we're suggesting or recommending? How are you solving some of the challenges for them? How are you solving challenges for architects across your org? Uh, you know, it's a work in progress. Um, some of it I think is really, uh, I think from my perspective anyway, a lot of it is thinking about how, you know, it isn't that we need to like bring in more external knowledge for the most part. Like we have a lot of the knowledge we need inside the organization. It just isn't necessarily connected and it isn't necessarily very leverageable. So it's like the whole sort of like skeletons in the closet kind of situation, right? It's like somebody knows this thing that would be really valuable to know right now. Can we find them in this situation? Can we get them to then share that in a way that's going to resonate with the the people involved, right? And so there's definitely a lot of it that involves um, making connections, basically, and getting people to learn from each other about what's going on and about what works or what doesn't work within our organizational context, right? It's not a here's a generic leadership book, please read it and you'll be better off. It's like, hey, you've had to like pitch something to this leader before. What resonated with them? Or like, what is really the bee in their bonnet right now? Like, what is going to be the thing that's going to land with them? Like, how can I pitch this effectively, right? Um, And really thinking about um, more sort of like coaching and apprenticeship and things like that of like, hey, I'm on my way to being an architect. I don't want to just like suddenly find that I'm on the like architect diving board about to jump in and don't know how I'm going to like manage this. Right. I'd like to have like a more general transition of like starting at the waiting end of the pool and getting a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper as someone like is there to make sure that it's safe for me and that if I have questions or need support that I can get it. Um, So, yeah, I think. You know, we got by, um, but. As the organization grew, like just getting by is uh, less and less consistent over time, I'll say, I guess, right? Like some people get by better than other people and some people get by worse than other people. And there's also just like, I think from my perspective, at least I have a lot of concern about like the DEI implications of that, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. in many cases, the people that get by more readily and the implied state of things are the people who look like the people who've historically gotten by okay, which is mostly a bunch of graying white dudes, right? <laughs> As we were talking about before, like, um, you know, of of whom I am one. But um, so, you know, really like just trying to figure out how to get those supports. And in many cases, I think they are like person to person supports. It's not a, I'm going to bring in this external consultant and they're going to teach a class to you and you're going to be better off. It's a, hey, we all have a lot we can learn from one another. And the things that we need to learn actually are the things that each other knows, not the things that some other magical guru we find is going to know or something. Um, 
And so, yeah, just kind of trying to connect the dots. So I'm focusing a lot on like community of practice kinds of things and trying to really figure out how to do that in a way that will build these connections, help that transfer of knowledge, but also not be too much of an ask for people, right? Like people are busy. Like I know I don't, you know, just want to say, hey, by the way, can you just spend an extra five or six hours a week contributing to my community? Um, I promise it'll be worth it. Like you'll love it, right? Great. Um, but to really kind of balance, you know, how to make that as easy as possible to do, how to make it as obvious what the benefit to you in doing that is. Um, and then, yeah, just slowly but surely, hopefully build some momentum behind that and get it to something that can hopefully sustain and really get that transfer of knowledge going, get people supported, get them to be able to make that transition up through the levels, get them to be more successful at the higher levels, just the, just the whole thing. So. Do you find that some element of that is that everybody's got their siloed version of kind of company direction and strategy and that uh, getting those kind of viewpoints aligned, that there's like synergy and sort of teamwork that, that emerges from that that wouldn't otherwise? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some challenges there. Um, you know, the we use this process called VTMOM, which I think does a pretty good job uh, in particular of like providing vertical alignment to us. So usually like you, we're pretty well aligned, I think, and have a good understanding of like if we trace upward through our hierarchy, what that person wants, like what our leader wants. Um, but that doesn't always give you the context to necessarily know if I have a team that's kind of near me but reports up through someone else, like what is it that their leader wants and how does that relate to what my leader wants? And if they don't like line up, then what? Um, uh, Cause there's definitely some situations then, especially if there's the, you know, like it makes things like uh, whether or not we should build shared services, a very fraught question sometimes, right? Like, well, we would love it if you would build a shared service and support it for us. Uh, okay. But like, does that really align with what we're trying to do or does that, you know, will yeah. that create sort of like drag for us that now we need to support this broader thing than we really need? Um, you know, so all, all of those kinds of things that you might imagine, right. Um, happen in yeah. a, a larger organization and they're not insurmountable, but sometimes you have to get creative about who you need to bring in to, you know, broker that conversation or make sure that that conversation happens. Um, I mean, I think sometimes it's just a matter of um, at least to get started raising that awareness. I think sometimes it's easy for those to, things to just fall under the radar. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I really hope to do with some of this community stuff is to better connect people that are sort of like horizontally in the organization where, I don't know, I've <clears throat> suggested this to a few people and I always feel like it's a little bit weird, but it's this notion that like, on some level, I personally, I'm not sure that I care that much if we have duplicate implementations, as long as we don't have like duplicate efforts to learn the same lesson. Like, I feel like in some ways that's the more costly thing. Like if you're going to build a service, uh, but we already know exactly what all the specifications are and how it should work, like that duplication probably isn't really that expensive to us in a lot of ways. But if you're going to start not really knowing exactly what the requirements are, which let's be honest, is how we approach most software most of the time in my experience, like, and there's one group that's kind of sort of trying to figure out exactly what it should do over here and a different group over there that's trying to kind of sort of figure out what it's going to do. And they come to more or less the same conclusions by having all the same costly trial and error. Like that seems really like a problem. Like that seems like such a waste. Like if you learn something interesting about, I don't know, how to run event-based systems and not very many of us in the company have done that yet, like please help us to learn what that important lesson was so that we don't just do that same thing over again. Um, and that I feel like there's often a big gap, right? Like 
because okay, I learned something like where do I put it so that the relevant people can find it? How does this work? Uh, you know, how do I even know if anybody cares about this? And beyond that, like is taking the time to put that into a presentation or a report or whatever else, like something that's actually recognized and rewarded in the company, or should I just like go back to having heads down because that's, what's going to get me promoted. I mean, it's not the only thing that, uh, you know, causes people to do things, but it's a factor for sure. So yeah, and, uh, and on the and learning, I, and I guess for the... listener context, I mean, uh, these deals, Salesforce is pretty big. I mean, what's the sort of uh, number of developers and or architects that we're talking about here that you're working in the scale of? Uh, a fine question. I never exactly know. Um, yeah, so really, really big is, is yes. probably a, a good answer. <laughs> Hundred, hundreds uh, of uh, uh, architects and thousands of developers for sure, but I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is, I don't know, I guess my observation here is like on some level, you're working on sort of organizational and systemic design now, as opposed sure. to sort of this API design. And the bigger the scale of the problem, while it would seem obvious that the generic things work, there's the exceptions seem to be the rule. It sounds like that's the thing in common here, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing that is, I don't know, makes sense to me, but again, maybe sounds weird to other people is like, there feel like there's a lot of parallels. Like a lot of what I work on now is sort of like the interface of the organization. Like how do we make sure that information transfers between these groups? If they're trying to make an important decision, like what's a good effective process for them to do that so they don't have to just make it up. Um, and to me, at least that feels a lot like the parallels you might see between like a private interface and a, a public API or something, right? It's like, hey, all of these architects end up having to do kind of sort of these same things. Like they shouldn't have to renegotiate what their interface is among them while they're doing this important thing also. Like, can we just kind of agree that at least most of the time, this is a reasonable way to go about doing that thing, like making an important decision, and then just focus on the actual decisions and not have to renegotiate that every time. Because um, I think there's, you know, just this sort of like tax that you get otherwise, you don't realize it, but it's like, if we haven't really like, come into this with an understanding of how this process is going to go, we're inherently going to have to figure it out as we go along. And sometimes that will be good. And sometimes it'll be bad, but it's always going to cost something. It's always going to be a distraction. It's always going to take away from us doing the thing that we came here to do. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to be like so strict, uh, that people have no autonomy. Right. So it's this balancing act of like, where do we draw the lines of, um, making recommendations versus requirements or mandates or, you know, however that might work out. So, you know, for me, I'm a big fan of just like defaults, right. Where it's like, this is the default. If you have a really good reason to deviate from it, more power to you. But when you do that deviation, please tell us what you learned, right? Like that, that is the requirement. If you're going to deviate is that I want to learn what you learned. Um, whether that's, we deviated and it was great. Here's why, or we deviated and it was a terrible idea. It turns out we should have just used the default. Like, fine, you know, uh, just, uh, help us to figure out if the default's wrong or if there's a better default, or if we should recommend 80% of the time use the default, but here's this other set of cases that sometimes this other thing will work well. Right? Like, again, just like, how do we keep capturing that knowledge, shifting it around, uh, helping everyone to continue to grow and, and progress. Well said, um, at the, at the time that you were looking at, at sort of opening up uh, the, the sort of Heroku 
API design standards guide, style guide, whatever we call it. Um, did you have sort of inspirations that you were looking at of others who had done something similar? Like looking back at it now, the only thing I could find was like White House was the only other project I found that had really done it at the time. But were there mm -hmm. other sort of public things like this that you were looking at back then? Uh, yeah, I think I also remember seeing the White House stuff at the time. Um, I think right around that time, um, the JSON API stuff had been kind of uh, oh, yeah. initially written. So I believe I looked at that some. And that was one of the things where it's like, I like how you're uh, talking about this stuff generally, but I don't necessarily agree with some of your conclusions. Like, um, yeah. And I think that was similar with uh, some of the White House stuff where it's like, I really like that there is something like this, but some of the particulars aren't quite what I think is going to work for us or what I you know, think is more generally applicable. Um, otherwise, I mean, I was definitely keeping an eye on a lot of the different um, schema things, right? Um, and, and the progress with those. That was also another place where it's like, if I had it to do again, I don't know that I would make the same decision. We just did basically raw JSON schema because that was also a place that was very unsettled and basically everything was ending up just using JSON schema inside of its overarching schema in some way, shape or form. And so we were just sort of like, well, JSON schema seems like the common thing and can pretty much cover the bases. So let's just do that. It's very not user friendly though. Unfortunately, it's like kind of a pain to work directly with JSON schema. So, um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I was definitely like keeping an eye on what was happening in the space, but there weren't a lot of other examples. Um, that being said, like, you know, we had actually done a style guide for the CLI at Heroku. Like, you know, the style guides were something that like it was uh, something that I was familiar with trying to use, right? To say, here are kind of our preferences. Here's what we prefer. Here are good defaults, things like that to just help people to be closer to the same page. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. There, there were I think it, it's like a lot of things like I often find that I draw from indirect things, right? Like, so it's not that I didn't look at style guides. It's just that there weren't that many API style guides to look at. So yeah. I looked at other style guides and thought about what seemed to work well there or not work well, what I liked about them. And, you know, you have to be a little bit creative sometimes to figure out how that maps between the domains or whatever. But that doesn't mean that there's not still interesting things you can draw there. All right. Well, I think you confirmed what I've been fishing for in doing this little history dig, which is I'm pretty sure that that publication was like the first of sort of a private company or, or a company that published their own view on this stuff as opposed to like json api which was sure. uh you know trying to be one of the spec standards or white house being government i mean that was certainly an important innovation but um i just want to i guess i have to say and, and on behalf of a, probably a lot of folks listening that um that time era i think was important and that step that you guys took with Heroku, you may not have realized at the time, was super relevant to a lot of people in realizing, yeah, we should share this stuff and we should all start moving toward common ways of doing things. Um, that really led down a road of, you know, certainly in our world at Stoplight, like, um, you know, having this sort of programmatic method of, of linting for these things instead of having to write out a bunch of, you know, big lengthy tomes. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we're just reflecting on that and realizing, like, yeah, and the actions you took were really important back then. So from me to you, and I think the community, thank you for doing that. Wow. Well, that's very uh, humbling, I guess. I mean, it. I I put a lot into it. You know, it's something that I cared about, and I was glad of the result. But um, yeah, I guess it can be hard sometimes to know how much of an impact it really does or doesn't have on people. And I'm 
I'm glad that it has had that positive impact. That's very rewarding. For sure. All right. Well, uh, that feels like a good place for us to wrap, I think. And I guess, uh, you know, I, I promised we were going to we were going to talk API OG stuff here, talking nearly <laughs> 10 years ago for style guides. Uh, but but I love your your perspective of a very gritty, hands-on reality of the culture change that comes with these kinds of things over time and what it's like building a vast engineering empire, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, just really appreciate all the transparency and, uh, and, and how much you shared with us today. I guess any uh, closing thoughts for listeners to maybe kind of uh, wrap this up or give them some words of wisdom? Uh, I mean, I think kind of, you know, looking back and thinking about some of the things we talked about, uh, one of the big things I think is just, you know, to try to draw really diverse inspiration from different things and places. I think that's been really impactful for me in terms of, like I said, you know, looking at lots of different cloud providers to kind of figure out what I liked and what I didn't like, or looking at style guides that weren't even API style guides, because they're still, you know, like that's what I'm kind of trying to emulate. Or yeah, like it's, there's so much that I learned, for instance, from just like, uh, don't make me think and other UX stuff, even though API isn't always thought about as being like a UXy thing. I think it is now, but especially when I was doing it, it didn't feel that way. And so there were definitely like all of these things where, you know, I don't think that I'm like some crazy genius or something. A lot of it was just sort of like, oh, that was a really interesting idea over from this totally other subject. How could I apply that here? Oh, interesting. Maybe I can try this thing and maybe that will be better and not quite the way that people think about it because, you know, we're all in our little uh, echo chamber or whatever, right? So um, I definitely recommend, yeah, just like thinking about how to apply these weird things from other realms um, because that's where I feel like, for me at least, where I find a lot of these inspirations and I'm able to really push the push things forward so I love it uh I think you know my my takeaways are like kind of design thinking approach to all the things whether it be an organization <laughs> an API sure. whatever right and and to some extent like systems thinking is it being a subset of that um yes. and the kind of diversity of inputs both in terms of people and and practice right mm-hmm. um and that is uh, that's fantastic stuff, and uh, really, I, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't support more what you're saying. So, for listeners, pay attention. This guy knows who he's <laughs> talking about. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much, Wesley. Really appreciated this today, and uh, thanks, Anna, again for co-hosting. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks Anna. for having me. API Intersection podcast listeners are invited to sign up for Stoplight and save up to six hundred and fifty dollars. Use the code intersection10 to get 10% off a new subscription to Stoplight Platform Starter or Pro. Take a look at this episode's description for more details. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.